This is Side of Design from BWBR, a podcast discussing all aspects of design with knowledge leaders from every part of the industry. Hello, and welcome to Side of Design from BWBR. I'm Jarrett Anderson, BWBR project manager and architect, and your host for this episode. On this episode, we'll be talking with BWBR design leader and architect, Chris Fisher, and interior designer, Kat Lauer, about their work serving our science and technology clients by creating lab spaces and how each of their unique backgrounds helps make them stronger designers. Kat and Chris, thanks for joining us today. We're excited to hear from you both. You know, Chris and Kat, can you give us, the listeners, a little bit of an overview of the kind of work that we at BWBR categorize as science and technology as well as some background on our lab design process and expertise. So we work with a number of high-tech firms in the medical device area, in the biotech area, also in general manufacturing. And we generally work with their R&D groups to help them basically design new R&D facilities, help them figure out ways to be more efficient, more innovative, and uh, create more thoughtful working environments that enhance what they do every day. Kat, you want to add? Yeah, in addition, I think we do a lot of higher education work specifically in science and technology buildings. That falls under that category also. Within our healthcare practice, we do labs. But, you know, the science and tech work that Chris was talking about ranges from, you know, molecular level stuff to large transportation, right? It's, It's not all one type of science and tech. Right. It's not just clean spaces. It's a little bit of everything, right? And it, it involves chemicals and it involves manufacturing. And it's kind of a space where I think that we need to kind of sweat the details, if you will, on a lot of this, right? Where some of these spaces, they are manufacturing, they're clean. They can seem simple on the surface, but you really have to pay attention to how everything is organized, what the finishes are, how things are insulated and how it all works. So, you know, with with that said, can you tell us a little bit about what makes this kind of work unique and challenging? And what are some of those special considerations that need to be taken into account? Well, Jared, I think one of the things you alluded to is the complex nature of some of these spaces and whether you're talking about high-end clean rooms. And when we're talking about that, we're talking everything from class 1000 all the way up to, you know, class 100,000. So a wide range of requirements that go into these spaces where manufacturing is done. So we have to be very thoughtful about the workflow, the work process, and then how that affects the atmosphere or the environment that these folks are working in. And so that aspect is really the complex nature. And then to throw in another caveat, most of these environments include the fact that they're part of an overall R&D building envelope. And so bringing in potential clients to see how the process is done throws in another caveat into the mix because these environments ideally are just closed off and onto themselves so that you can maintain these different environments from a humidity standpoint, from an air cleanliness standpoint. But bringing that next level of transparency and the idea that clients and people who work there can understand the the flow and the process is is critical to the success of the projects. So there's that uh, the R&D, the research and development side of things, right? Some of that is proprietary to that company in some ways too, right? Or that space or place. And they might you know, want to keep some of those things behind doors to behind closed doors and not show some things off. So 
there's a lot of a lot of things that you are just talking about in terms of flow flow of you know the public coming in flow of staff coming in services you know you name it gases and storage and supplies and then waste coming out the other side or a product and how that whole thing works is likely i would guess unique to each institution or each client that we work with yeah and and unique to each product type or whatever that client is making can really vary but i think more and more those facilities are something you want to show off you put a lot of money into a a new clean facility or a manufacturing facility and, and being able to show an investor or a potential customer where the product is being made can be really a benefit to as well as being conscious of what what all you're showing off because it is sometimes confidential and you also have to pay attention to who is working there on a day-to-day basis right like if you're someone on a manufacturing line how is your day-to-day operation going where are you eating lunch you know where are you changing that kind of a thing right how much time do you have to do all those things and you know to to make sure that you're entering the space uh, you know cleanly and in a certain way those are those are a lot of things to think about as well i would imagine and then i think another side that Chris, you were maybe alluding to is kind of the collaborative nature and transparency in there a little bit in terms of maybe researchers working with other researchers. Right. And then I think the other piece that you just brought forth, which is the general flow, you were starting to talk about people flow and people flow is obviously very important, not only from the standpoint of efficiency, but how people spend their day, how many steps they take in a day and so forth. I think there's other aspects to flow as well. Obviously, raw material flow in and product flow out and how the whole building is arranged, whether it's manufacturing or whether it's just R&D and it's pilot space or it's uh, just general bench space, how the building functions and flows to accommodate the research and the innovation. And then I'm, I'm guessing that our, our clients also pay attention and, and are curious about Uh, adaptability and flexibility of these spaces. Yeah, certainly. I mean, you you set up a lab and and we probably all have a picture of what a lab space is with really kind of fixed casework or what we might have experienced in high school or college, you know, science labs. But talking about an R&D facility for a medical device manufacturer, they want to be able to be nimble and agile and, and move that equipment around as needed. So there's both flexibility in terms of the, the room orientation and the, the laboratory furniture and casework, but also the utilities that are serving all of that equipment and, and being aware of how those are brought throughout the facility. To add is uh, one of the key factors in that is trying to create modularity within that system. And, and that really allows for, or is one of the key factors for creating this adaptability and and future flexibility um, and not having to pay for it all on day one, right? And being thoughtful with the structural system and with the mechanical system in that modular layout so that things can be easily accessed both on day one and in the future. And it doesn't mean you have to go run a, a gas line back to the central plant or a duct back to the central plant or an exhaust line. All of those things can be relatively at your fingertips, if you will, maybe not right in the lab, but very proximate to the lab. Part of that flexibility and adaptability, we consider code a really important part of this as well, right? And bring a code expertise to the table as well in terms of zooming way back and, and you know, thinking about these environments. Again, sweating the details about, you know, how many chemicals can you have in certain areas, you know, given 
right? How a building itself might lay out on a site. Uh, Chris, if you can speak it, speak it all to that. Yeah, absolutely. I can start it and pass it on. I think it's one of the areas that's probably the most challenging in these complex environments is really being able to, number one, categorize and understand the different chemicals that are involved in the research or in the manufacturing or pilot process. That's number one. Two, then getting the client to understand and be able to share the overall quantities because that gets back to the code and how you break down the building. And then from there, we can basically give occupancy characteristics to the building, whether it's going to be something that's a B occupancy possibly that's broken into control areas, or it's an H occupancy of some sort. And there's a number of different H occupancies we can choose from depending on the chemicals types and what is needed for for the process. So that is an area that gets really complex and it's something that uh, BWBR does very well. And we have a, a couple of folks who specialize in codes and are absolutely terrific at discerning the different chemical types and, and figuring out the best way to uh, to break up the building or classify the building. Kat, can you tell us a little bit about your background and your journey to where you are now? And, you know, what's your role in what's your typical role? I think you know, it's maybe a tough question to, to answer because you, you likely it's not just a typical thing. Each situation is a little bit different. But, you know, in a, in a lab design project, what are things that you take on? Uh, how far back of a history do you want? I mean, <laughs> how far back do you want to go? I mean, there's uh... <laughs> no. Uh, so we'll say back in high school when I was thinking, you know, thinking about what I wanted to do when I got to college and I was very interested in both art and design and then also science. So I got to college uh, right after high school and decided to be a physics major. So I majored in physics and really loved understanding all the theory and the formulas and the math. I mean, I liked figuring out equations, as dorky as that sounds. And then ended up going to grad school for biophysics because I had done a couple internships in undergrad with different areas of physics and biophysics felt like the best fit in terms of the human aspect of science and, and relating physics back to really practical day-to-day advances for life. So I went to grad school and worked in a lab doing molecular biophysics and looking at proteins that affect how tumors might be expressed uh, in cells with uh, the idea of curing cancer. I don't know, save the world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> End goal. Uh, shot. But, Let's go for it. Right, exactly. But it, while I was in grad school, I started to do more and more stuff on the side outside of school, uh, taking pottery classes and trying to nurture that design side again. Kind of eventually figured out that science, well, I love it and I'm fascinated by it on a day-to-day basis. Needed something with a more tangible result on a day-to-day basis. So I ended up leaving grad school uh, with my master's degree and uh, worked in a few different areas for a while while I sorted out, okay, I just spent this time in school, what do I want to do? And eventually decided to go back to school for interior design, kind of full circle back to my, uh, what I thought I wanted to do when I was 16 and got my interior design degree. And I've been working in the field now for three years and really happy to land at BWPR in terms of the types of work that we do really mesh my two loves, I guess, of science mm-hmm. and design. That's really cool. Is that, do you feel like you can bring more of your full self to work in that case, or you bring more of your full self to certain projects? Like, do you feel like you're that much more invested in things because of that? 
Yeah, I think so. It's it, uh, definitely, especially with the science and tech projects, you know, being able to to relate to being in a lab, you know, and what that's like on a day-to-day basis. Because it turns out that interior design is more than just colors. It is. And I think, you know, in some ways I went back to school for it blindly, not necessarily realizing that. And then, you know, has turned out to be a much better fit than I even thought it would be. So um, because of that, because it is so much more technical than I originally thought. And and because there are firms like BWPR that specialize in science and tech projects. Nice. So Chris, same question over to you. Can you tell us a little bit about your background, uh, your journey to where you are now and your typical role within a project? Yeah, absolutely. First though, because I have a similar background, I, I have a master's degree in molecular biology along with my master's degree in architecture. I do have to ask Kat one question since uh, we both have this science background and and more of a molecular at a more of a molecular level. Do you think your past history and your education helps you visualize and conceptualize a little bit better because of what your background was and what you had to do to understand things that you couldn't see? Yeah, I think so. Because yeah, I mean, so I was doing molecular biophysics, specifically doing X-ray crystallography, trying to figure out the molecular structure of proteins, right? So you're trying to figure out this, you know, we all know the structure of water, right, is two hydrogen molecules and one oxygen molecule. And you think about a protein, which is thousands of atoms and how they all connect to each other. But day to day, you're just looking at stuff in a test tube or you might be running a a gel, which I'm sure you ran gels. (laughs) And you just end up with these bands and you have to think, it means something in a very abstract way and then connect it back to, okay, I see this two-dimensional dot on a thing. How does this relate to what's going on inside a cell, inside a human body? And the reason I bring that up, Jared, is is everybody inevitably asks, so how in the world did you make the jump from biology or biophysics over to architecture? And And I would say... In many ways, it's not that big of a jump. Same approach to problem solving. And then this idea, and I will tell you, the folks who work in molecular biophysics or molecular biology or any protein or biochemistry level, they have to be able to visualize things. They have to be able to diagram things because it's the only way you can actually work things out in your head when you can't see them, right? And so I think uh, I agree with Kat that it was a great background actually coming in into architecture and design and interior design. And and it's really been helpful from a process standpoint in, in working through design problems and science and technology problems and so forth. Certainly, there's that direct connection and having that background or knowledge. Maybe being more open to testing your design and more, maybe even that much more. I th- I like to feel like we're all open to feedback, but maybe that makes y'all a little bit more that much, that much more objective and, and that sort of thing. Like, oh, well, if this doesn't work, then we, we really, instead of having to force it to work, you know, find it, find that better, different solution that's over here. I, I completely empathize with that. You know, I have a, a master's in architecture and my minor was uh, mathematics and, and philosophy of all things at a minor focus and two seemingly divergent things, but it's more about the qualitative and the subjective things coming together. And that's where design and that design process kind of comes together. And yeah, I like the, you know, systemic way that Kat, you were talking about, you know, the underpinnings of things and 
and how it all comes together. And, you know, I think we all see that when we see, you know, a program list or an equipment list or, uh, you know, certain problems that uh, our R&D folks might be experiencing. You can empathize with that also on a, on a different level, more tangible level as well, which I think is great. But sorry, Chris, I, I interrupted you. No, this is this is good. And so ultimately, to get, get back to my background thing, we moved back and forth a little bit, um, kind of like the design process where yeah. we're going through another iteration. The background that came to me is I came out of college hoping to go to med school, and that didn't pan out. I didn't get into med school. And so I then moved on to grad school for molecular biology, which I found interesting. And then upon leaving there with a master's degree, I, I was fortunate enough to get a a job down at the University of Chicago doing research and much like Cat again, nice crossover here, was researching immunology, interestingly enough, for the chief of cardiology who had an amazing set or fleet, I would almost say, of labs where he did both cardiology work and immunology work. And we were looking at more basic research that impacted the immune system, but also impacted the response to cancers. And so we were looking at transcription factors that affected T-cell and T-cell response to, to tumors. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, oh, yeah. And we were doing basic research to figure out what those different transcription factors were, which, and for those of you out there, if I'm talking transcription factor, it, it's basically a protein that allows for gene regulation. So that's what we were looking into. From there, I went back to school. I did that for about four or five years and decided that wasn't exactly my cup of tea and and was very interested in architecture and finding out about that. So I was able to get my master's degree after that and then worked in, this is probably my sixth or seventh firm I've been able, I've been fortunate enough to bounce around both because we moved and, and also because I wanted to check out both small, medium and large type firms. And I've been fortunate over my career to work at some very good places with some very good people. And I'm I'm blessed now to be here working with you all at BWBR. And then your typical role when you when you hop on a project then uh you know what role do you take on? As a design leader, come in at the very front end of the project and and start working with a client to establish their vision and their goals. And we try to take their vision and their goals and try to conceptualize that into the three-dimensional form, right? And and put together a a building that is meeting their needs, both functionally and and aesthetically. And so ultimately, we work very hard to ask them the right questions and really pull out as much information as we can from them so that we can put together a building that flows properly, functions properly, provides areas for people to come together, to ideate, to innovate. It's really important, especially in the S&T area, but I think in all aspects that we realize that we are all better together than we are apart, right? And so creating these buildings, not only for machines that do work, but for people who are innovative and thoughtful and and put these uh, machines together or put them adjacent to one another. And, and that allows for new and creative ideas to flow between individuals and be- between groups and processes uh, is really the end goal of what we do. You're starting to get to how your background has, has translated uh, to how you kind of approach your work on a, on a day-to-day basis a little bit. And, you know, do, do either of you have any more tangible examples of, 
how all of that has played into your practice or or maybe even informed lessons that you've learned over time? Coming from a science background and having had the experience of working in a lab, um, you know, when when you're meeting with a client and they're talking about, oh, our NMR machine or our electrophoresis or whatever types of specific equipment they have, you know, if you've never encountered that in a day-to-day life and, and, and had to work with those types of machines, it can be a little... It's a foreign language, really, you know, mm-hmm. uh, but being able to go into the room and say, oh, yeah, yeah, I have a I have a concept of what that looks like. I can ask we can ask some more probing questions to better understand what those processes are and how they particularly use that equipment. But even just knowing the lingo, it's not um, some concept of how big this might be or how small that thing is or or how critical, you know, this one small step in a really long process is, you know, maybe there's just one step in that process that is the the key to the whole thing. And along those lines, I think something we talked about earlier that I, is is definitely critical to my process is, is being able to break things down into their purest form and diagram that, right? And so your concepts are generated from diagrams. And having that ability to diagram these things makes architecture a lot easier, at least from where I'm coming from and the process that I come into play. And so having that background of problem solving and and doing that via the abstract diagram and turning that into something that then becomes architecture is critical. I think the other aspect of it is is the analysis part of it, right? I mean, when we first attack any project, we're looking at the site and we're looking at the site from the standpoint of hopefully we're taking in all the variables, whether that's daylight and sunlight and orientation, where the wind's coming from and how that impacts the shape and the position of the building on the site, water flow, all of those things come into play. And it's and we say that those are key critical factors without getting directly into sustainability, right? These these are critical factors that are a huge part of sustainability, but they're a huge part of making a building function from a daylighting standpoint and from the from the standpoint of being user-friendly and thoughtful as you approach a building. And those are critical elements that you need to go into in every project, analyze all of that data. And then as you slide into the sustainable aspects of things, being able to look at data and decide whether this is helping the building or hurting the building, being able to decipher primary objectives and what's the most important thing, you know, in this particular building type. And it's really interesting when you get into R&D and S&T type buildings, do we need a really tight envelope on this building or do we need to focus on uh, heat recovery because, well, we're exhausting so much air that the envelope doesn't even matter anymore. We're putting so much fan power and so much air in and out of the building that certainly the envelope always matters. But to a degree, compared to a maybe a B occupancy, a business occupancy building where there's just a number of offices, the relative uh, importance of the thickness of the insulation on the envelope isn't as big of a factor if you're sucking, you know, half of the air that's coming into the building right back out of the building, right? So it's it's interesting, but being able to tap into all the characteristics and the parameters and and trying to make good decisions on on how that impacts the exterior of the building, how that impacts the interior of the building, and, and what becomes the key drivers for design decisions 
all go back to, I think, having that problem solving and analytical development that came from having a, a, a scientific background. Listening to Chris and he's, he's using the words variables and data and parameters and just thinking about like, okay, back in the lab, if you're setting up an experiment, like these are all the things you're going to think about, right? And mm-hmm. it's all the same. It's not all the same, but it's the analyzing all those different factors and what are the variables that you need to control to make sure that the building functions it's sort of like, what are the variables you need to control to make sure the experiment turns out, right? It's funny how many parallels there are. In our sense, it's almost play with too is mm-hmm. part of it. What are the variables we get to play with, and and can you know to to find that new solution and that new thing? Thank you both, Cat and Chris, for your time today. I enjoyed talking with you. And um, did you have any other closing thoughts you wanted to share? You know, when I was in in grad school and and trying to figure out if I wanted to stay in science or not, and I was spending more time like organizing and labeling the lab than I was always doing my experiments. I think that was telling me something that, you know, maybe maybe designing the space for the people who are going to change the world is more my place than running the experiments. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. I would say I think we're fortunate in this industry. I think just just about everybody who comes into work every day in architecture really enjoys what they do. You have tangible impacts. But I will also say this, it's an interesting crossover because it's a very dynamic time for science and research as well. When I first went into architecture school, Jared, my first professor said, what are you doing? In art? You just came from a biochemical background. They're like, that's where innovation is at right now. Architecture's innovation happened about 100 years ago, he said. <laughs> I don't necessarily believe that. I think we're always striving to do better, but it was an interesting uh, comparison. And I was making the wrong choice and I was making a transition at the wrong time. Well, sometimes if you haven't been questioned, why are you in this field? Then I don't know if you're really testing the boundaries in school, right? (laughs) Thank you. Thank you both very much for your time today. All right, everybody. Thanks for catching us on this episode and we'll see you on the other side. This has been Side of Design from BWBR, brought to you without any paid advertisements or commercials. If you found value in what you've heard today, give us a like, leave us a comment, or better yet, share us with your network. You can also reach out to us if you'd like to share an idea for a show or start a discussion. Email us at sideofdesign at bwbr.com. 